0: Morning, James chapter 4, experiencing victory from the war within. Thursday afternoon, I had the opportunity of standing with a family from our church, preaching the memorial service of a loved one, and being able to say, really, he is worthy. He is. There's the hope of heaven in Christ. And then over the weekend, I had the opportunity of standing before our family, Angie and I together, and I did the wedding of our niece over the weekend. It's a joy to minister to family but what an honor to stand before them and share the good news of Christ with them as well. And so I just say that to challenge you and your family. Make sure you're having gospel conversations with people in your family. Uh, who, who is Christ? What's he doing in your life? And how can they know him as well? That's a joy to do. Is he worthy? He is. So think about this message in James chapter 4 again. It's not an easy message. But to be faithful to preaching and teaching the whole counsel of God, I want to deal with what his word says. As I think about days when I was in seminary, I remember a seminary professor who taught us to say the average tenure of a pastor in America when I was in seminary was two years and four months in the local church. You guys have very different experiences here at First Baptist because you've had long tenured pastors. But the average pastor then in America, two years and four months. And I, every year, would go to the Southern Baptist Convention. And as we would go there, there was a luncheon that we would go to. And the luncheon was entitled Wounded Hearts. And the luncheon was really for those in ministry who were facing very tough days, challenging days, pastoring in hard, difficult places, following God's call and assignment, to go there and be encouraged, wonderful meal, but great speakers, and just encouragement in that luncheon. And let me pull back the ministry curtain just a little bit so you can see behind it. And when you're at the Southern Baptist Convention and you're going there, many times you'll go to those lunches because they're free. That's just the truth. You think it's a free lunch? I'm going to go there. It's generally at a nice hotel. It's going to be a nice lunch. I'm going to go get a free meal. But there were many, many pastors, wives in the room at that luncheon. And here's where they found themselves at. They found themselves, their spiritual tank was empty. They found themselves tired from the work of ministry. They found them frustrated with what God had called them to do. And many of them were facing temptation to walk away from ministry and to say, I either need to leave this church or just leave the ministry altogether. Very, very challenging luncheon. And as I think about pastoring a local church and standing before you and love you as a church, I would say if it's a pastor or pastoring a very challenging, difficult situation, the desire is the same. The desire is to see God's people united. The desire is to see God's people obedient to the Lord. The desire is to see God's people generous in their lives and giving. And the desire is to see the church with a mission in the city but also to the nations. That's the desire. But then you think two years and four months, not very long, But why do so many guys walk away from ministry? Uh, It's not on the outline. I'm going to give you a little, again, pulling back the curtain just for a moment. Because when you look at James chapter 4, this is a tough congregation at this point. Why do they walk away? Let me me give you some reasons. One is moral failure. They walk away or they are no longer in ministry because they did not protect their character and integrity. They found themselves in a compromising place, situation. They did not handle temptation God's way. They committed a moral failure, and it just eliminated them from the work of ministry. Second reason is, this is what's known as pathological antagonist. And that this just means as a pastor, you're going to have people at times who are going to disagree with you, who's not going to support your leadership and uh, who may be a little critical of you at times. And so finally, a pastor says, I'm tired of being beat upon. I'm tired of being criticized. So I'm going to leave this church. I'm going to go to another church. And what you discover is they have twins at that other church. <laughs> and so you leave and think, well, they're not there. Then you go there and you realize, did y'all just move from over there to here? Or do you have family here? You guys look alike. Uh, or do you just say, I'm just going to walk away altogether. It just, it just follows you. That's the work of ministry. Third reason, pastoral exhaustion. Uh, There are guys who walk away from ministry or assignments because stress is at an all-time high. Uh, They walk away because of unrealistic expectations. And let me just be transparent. Many times, those of us as pastors, we self-inflict ourselves here because we put way too high expectations on ourselves. But many pastors walk away because of that. And they're just exhausted. And they're just tired, and they're frustrated, and they're just tempted to say enough is enough. I remember sitting with a pastor one day, he was in my office, and he said, you know, I woke up this morning realizing I've been hitting my head against the wall way too long, and I finally come to realize this morning it hurts, and I need to stop it. And he walked away. And then the fourth reason, you don't hear a lot about, but it's a growing situation in our, in our nation And here's the fourth reason, ministerial suicide. And and I'm not talking about the guy takes his life. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is the guy says, I don't see any way out of this ministry situation, so I'm going to do some kind of action that will guarantee that I will no longer serve in ministry. They don't see any way out, and they do that. I'm not talking about taking his life. Just doing some kind of behavior action that will remove him from ministry and say, that's the only way I see out. James chapter 4. James asks a very rhetorical question: What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I wonder how someone how long someone will have been able to pastor this church. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Let me give you a little understanding of those words, quarrels. The word means conflict. The word means war. The word means battles. What about all the conflicts, the wars, the battles that are going on in your midst? What causes fights among you? Division. You're not on the same page. You're not unified. How long would a pastor have been able to stay in this church? Can you imagine what their business meetings must have been like? I know as Baptists, we try to stay away from business meetings, church conferences. Can you imagine being a part of one of those in this situation when they were at war with one another, they were battling one another, or they were fighting among one another? Can you imagine that? What it was like for the church, but also for the pastor. I remember preaching one time when I was with the Kentucky Baptist Convention, preached on Sundays for a church without a pastor. and, And so I was there on Sunday mornings and I was gone somewhere else the other time, and then. They had a business meeting on a Wednesday night. I preached the gospel on Sunday morning. They had a business meeting on Wednesday night. Things got so out of control, they had to call the police to come and guard what they were doing. Can you imagine how attractive that church must have been in the community? When the word is a business meeting among God's people, church people, the police have to be called in to see what's going on. You imagine this as you look at the book of James, you, you realize you're James writing these believers. They're at odds with one another. They had not really been praying very well as he's going to say. And then when they found themselves praying, it was all about themselves, never about the glory of God. And James is writing into that situation. You imagine that. Many people in this room, many people are watching. You're, you're going through some experiences in your life and, When I say you're going through experiences, here's what I mean. You look at life, and God's allowing you to go through some tough seasons in your life right now. And you look at it, and you say, why is God allowing that? Well, one, he's revealing himself to you. Two, he's teaching you some things during this season of your life. And and three, he's growing you like maybe you've never grown in your relationship before. You also may be able to look at it and say this. On one hand, maybe you can say, I know what the Lord is trying to teach me. I know it clearly. You may say, I have a hint of what the Lord's trying to teach me. Have an idea. Or you may be able to say, this season of your life, I have no idea what God's trying to teach me, but I just know I'm going through a tough season of life. Then there are other people today going through a tough season because of emptiness in your life. You're empty in your life because, like the book of James here, we're going to see in James 4, everything about your life has been about yourself. And so it's been all about you, your wants, your desires, your passions... And so as a result of that, you find yourself empty because life's been about you. It's not been about following God. It's not about God's will in your life. It's not about doing what God wants you to do. It's about you in life. And so when you look at it, it's not been about God. It's not been about other people. It's been about you. Your needs have superseded everything in your life. It's about you. And James is writing to this church where that fits their description so, so well. And he's just very clear. He says... You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What a church. And I appreciate the honesty of God's word. He's writing to these group of believers, giving them hope and help. You can experience victory from the war within. Now. On your outline, let me walk through these with you if you're going to see yourself experiencing victory. There are three points to this message, and I believe if you're going to experience victory from the war within, you're going to be able to see these, apply these to your life, and you're going to have victory in your life. Number one is discover your priorities. Again, James writing to these individuals, they're at war with one another. War is dangerous, and war is often deadly, as we're going to see. But look at the first blank, the battle. Understand what the battle is. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It's a rhetorical question because James is just asking the question. They know the answer. And then he goes on to say to them, "Uh, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? I mean, you've got passions, that's a word for desires. You've got interests that are at war within you. Why? Because they're not God's passions. They're not his interests. They're not his desires. They're yours. So as you think about discover your priorities. What are your priorities in your life? In your life, but what are your priorities? What are we as a church? What are our priorities for us? So there's this battle going on. And then James goes on to say, You desire and do not have, so you murder. And and again, that's not necessarily little to not murdering one another. Sometimes it's with words. We can even break all Ten Commandments, not just by actions, but with words. And then he says... You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What James is saying to them is this. When you think about this warfare that's going on within you, you have to realize what you're saying by your lifestyle, please get this. God, you are not enough. There's got to be more than you. And as you think about in our day, are there wars around us? Well, absolutely. You just look around. You see Russia and Ukraine. We see war firsthand. We're seeing images daily about that war. You look in our culture, do we see war happening within us? Yes, there's war. Why? Because here's what's at stake. We're trying to define what marriage, family, gender is in life. We know what the answer is because of God's Word. But there's a war in our culture to say, how are you going to define marriage, family, and gender? Are we speaking the truth and love to that? Then even in churches, there's war taking place in and the fellowship of God's people, for example, there's still war over worship styles. There's battles over that. There's wars, battles over who's in charge in the fellowship of the church. Still happening in our day in our churches. All right. And then there's even wars within individuals who are in this room and those who are watching. When I say the war, here's what I mean. You're trying to find freedom in your life from an addiction. You're trying to find direction in your life. You're trying to find peace in your life. There's no contentment in your life. There's just this war within you, mental, spiritual, emotional, relational in your life. You're just trying to find victory. James is saying to these believers, understand the battle. And then, of course, he says number two, when he said not only the battle, he says also the challenge. And he says here is the challenge. And he looks at this text. What causes quarrels and what causes fights? Well, it's your passions. It's your desires. That's the challenge. And what he's asking is, who is the priority of your life? Is Jesus the priority of your life? Now, I want to ask you individually this morning in the room of those who are watching. Let me ask you this. Is Jesus the priority of your life? If you can say yes, hallelujah to that. If you look at it and say, I don't know if Jesus is the priority of my life or not, I would encourage you to confess that this morning to him and say, Jesus, I don't know if you're the priority of my life or not, but you need to be the priority of my life. I want you to be the priority of my life. And then let me ask us as a church this morning, as a body of believers, those who know Christ, is Jesus the priority of our church? If he is the priority of our church, let's celebrate him for that. If he's not the priority of our church, let's confess that this morning. And then as you think about this church, you think about their business meetings, how difficult it must have been because of the quarrels and fights. Let me ask you as a church, are there any business meetings or church conferences that you need to confess to the Lord to say, The Lord, we did not handle that your way. Any of those you need to deal with and confess? As you think about relating with other believers in the fellowship of this church, can you recall any conversations that you've had with a brother or sister in Christ where you need to deal with that and say, I did not respond to you with the fruit of the Spirit. And you need to confess that and deal with that, any of those issues. But is he the priority of your life? Is he the priority of this church? I, I through the church one time. And I say this with a heavy heart because... Uh, we went for a span of about two months where we didn't baptize a single person. And during that same time, we removed the modesty rail on the platform to open up the platform with giving us more space so we can involve more people in worship. So during those same two months, that didn't baptize anyone for two months, and we removed the modesty rail, let me ask you, what upset the people more in that church? It wasn't that we hadn't baptized for two months. It would remove the modesty rail. Is he the priority of your life? Is he the priority of this church? When I think about 600 Tennessee Baptist Convention churches did not baptize a single person last year. Zero. How can we help these churches come back and say, let's make sure Jesus is a priority in this church. He is worthy. Let's make sure also evangelism is a priority in your church. Let's have gospel conversations. How do we help churches do that? You've got to realize in the book of James, well even in our day, when I was a young boy, my mom was living, she took me to an Elvis concert. I was about 10 years old. Some of you got excited about that. I was about ten years old. Went to see Elvis in this auditorium in Nashville. They came at the end and said, "Elvis has left the building." Now, whether he did or not, I don't know. He probably still hanging out backstage back there. But they said he had left the building. But you and I need to know. When you look at the church James is writing to, when you look at our church, you've got to realize, based on this, envy, idolatry have not left the building. We've got to watch those desires, passions, wars, battles are still around. Somebody asked Howard Hughes one time, how much is enough money to make you happy? And what did he say? Just a little bit more. Somewhere you've got to discover your priorities in life. Is he the priority of your life? Us as a church, is he the priority for us as a church? If you're going to experience victory from the war within, Jesus must be your priority. Amen. Tell Pastor. Look at number two. Develop your power. James is going to get personal after he's talked to him about all these selfish desires, passions, conflicts, wars, battles. And then he comes to this verse, and we we talk about this verse a lot. I was literally just heard it quoted over the weekend. And oftentimes we quote it, but we misinterpret it. And he says to these group of believers, he says, you have not because you ask not. And so we understand that to mean, well, we don't have something in life because we haven't prayed about it. We haven't asked God about it. And so we come along and we say these things. Well, if you want to be wealthy, just ask God about it. If, if you want to be famous in life, just ask God about it. You don't have wealth, you don't have fame because you've never asked God. But please understand, James in James chapter 4, he is not coming across with this name it and claim it theology. He's being faithful to say, if you don't have because you don't ask God, meaning you're not asking in the will of God for something. It's not always the will of God for you to be wealthy. It's not always the will of God for you to be famous. Ask in the will of God. You have not because you ask not. Ask what God wants you to have in life. I'm amazed at how many individuals, how many families, how many churches never ask God for direction in life. You face a major decision in your life, but you never ask God what He wants you to do in your life. I just encourage you in your life, for us to the church, let's never make a major decision without asking God to say, God, what do you want us to do in the midst of this? You have not because you ask not. And so let me ask you this morning, very personally, what are you praying and asking God to do in your life? How many people this morning say, I'm praying and asking God for joy in life? How many of you are asking God for peace in life? How many of you are asking God for contentment in life? How many of you are asking God for opportunities in life that you can have gospel conversations with people? How many of you are asking God this morning for direction in life? How many of you are asking God for victory over strongholds in your life? Summarize and encourage if you've got a stronghold that the enemy's coming against you, you need to make that known to God but also confess that to another brother or sister in Christ. You need help in the Christian life. How many of you are asking God for open doors? How many of you are thanking God for closed doors in your life? You have not because you ask not. And so I just encourage us, let's come before God and say, as Jesus did in the garden, Father, your will be done, not mine. Let's pray the same thing because you have not because you ask not. Well, let's ask in agreement with the will of God for us as individuals, but also for us as a church. Now, here's the question that I want you to fill in the blank zone. Why do so many people not ask God? Why do so many people not pray? What's up with that? Let me give you these words. One is lost. Many people don't ask God for anything because they're lost. They don't know him. They don't have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're lost. They're spiritually in darkness. But when you're lost, you're spiritually dead. That's the glory of salvation. He makes you spiritually alive. So they're not asking God because they're lost. And I just encourage you, here's the good news today. On this Palm Sunday, when Jesus came into Jerusalem again, celebrations but ultimately leading to the cross. You can walk out of here saved today, not lost. You know, what? that's the power of the gospel. That's why he died on the cross and victorious over the grave. You can be saved right here today in this room or watching. You can turn from your sin, give your life to Jesus Christ. The grace of God is so amazing. He will save you today. That's how gracious he is. So you don't have to stay lost. That's not an excuse. You can leave saved and that's glorious. Number two is the word drifted. Many people don't Don't ask because they've drifted in their relationship. They're prodigal. They used to be close to God, but now they've drifted in their relationship to him. So when they get up in the morning, they're not thinking about God. They're thinking about themselves. They're not thinking about the will of God. They're thinking about their own agenda in life. And so you may be in this room or watching and you've drifted in your relationship to God. You used to be real close with the Lord. Now because of decisions, you have drifted in your relationship to Him. You need to know this. He has never drifted from you. You're the one who's walked away from Him. The prodigal son is the one who left the father. But the good news, when he decided to come home, what did the father do? The father ran to him. And the good news this morning is, if you want to come home, the father is going to run to you as well. He is excited to welcome you home. Many people never pray because they've drifted in their relationship. But I encourage you, don't don't stay drifted. Come home. Come home this morning. Come home today on this Palm Sunday. Listen, he wants to welcome you home. He'll throw you a party as well when you come home. That's the glorious grace of the Father. Look at, look at number three, just untrained. Many people don't, don't ask God because they don't know how to pray. Luke chapter 11, verse 1, what did Jesus say to the disciples? Lord, teach us how to pray. As I look at my own life, I appreciate having conversations with God before daylight and throughout the day. But, but I need to know more about how to have a conversation with God than what I do. So I need to learn how to pray more. Maybe you need to come before God and say, God, will you just teach me how to pray more? How to pray like Jesus? Because I want to ask. And I want to be faithful to, to ask in agreement with your word. And then number four, impatient. Folks, you don't have because you don't ask. Many people don't ask because they're impatient because they know this. God works on a different time frame than we do. I mean, we want it right now, but God says, no, I'm going to wait a few weeks. I'm going to wait a few months. I may even wait a few years because there's something you need to get right in your life before I give that to you. The circumstances there and the circumstances here, they need to come together. And it's going to happen. It's just a matter of timing. And so we don't pray because we're impatient in life. I want to encourage you. Make sure. What do you need to ask God to do this morning? I wonder how many in this room need to ask him. Just be honest. God, I need to be saved this morning. You have not because you asked not. Ask him to save you. God, I need the intimacy of my relationship with you again. Ask him for that intimacy again. God, I need the courage to forgive someone who's wounded me. Ask God to give you that courage. God, I need balance in my life because life is way out of balance. Ask God for balance. God, I need victory in my life. It seems like the evil one is coming. God, I need victory in life. He'll give you those things. They're in agreement with his will for your life. So if you're going to experience victory from the war within, you've got to discover your priorities. He has to be first in your life. You've got to develop your power. The power is not you. The power is in a personal relationship with God as you pray and have a conversation with him. God gives you incredible power when you pray. And then number three, you disclose your problems. James even gets a little more personal with the church here because he says to them, you do not have because you do not ask. And then he says, oh, by the way, when you do pray, you've got to realize this. You're you're not praying with the right heart. He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. It's not about advancing his kingdom. It's not about advancing his agenda. It's about you. I mean, you're so self-centered. You're so self-focused. Life, ministry, everything is about you. And James says, God's not answering your prayers even when you pray because your attitude and your heart are just not right. And James is going to give them some correction to that. Tough church, tough situation. But James is speaking the truth from a pastor's heart to them in love, experiencing victory from the war within. What hinders our prayers? I want to give you these words, and we're going to finish. One is selfishness. Folks, there are times we we ask for something, and we don't receive it because we're asking with selfish motives. God, will you give me a new job? God, will you give me a new car, a larger house? God, will you give me more stuff? Why, it's just about us. It's not about Him. It's about us. And you've got to be careful when you pray with selfish motives. Because the Scripture says you don't have because you ask wrongly. When you pray, is it about His agenda or your agenda? When you pray, are you asking for His will to be done or your will to be done? When you pray, is it about His glory or is it about your gain in life? Selfishness. Look at the second one, schedules. Many times we don't receive, and we don't pray. Why? Because we're just too busy. I've got a book in my my study called Too Busy Not to Pray. Folks, we can get so busy, people say, well, I just don't have time to pray. I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to pray. I just encourage you, if you're that busy, you need to cut something out of your life. You need to eliminate something from your schedule so you can spend time with God. Schedules will get us way, way off course. And I just encourage you make sure, again, you're you're not praying because you're too busy. Pray because you need a conversation with God. Schedules can get us way off track. Then, number three is stubbornness. There are times we, we don't hear from God because we're stubborn in life, we're stubborn. We want our agenda to happen and not His. Let me ask you this. What do you do? It's 5 a.m. in the morning for you, and all of a sudden God wakes you up. What do you do in that time? You you just have a sense. God has put you awake at 5 a.m. in the morning. Very unusual for you. Do you turn over and try to say, I'm going to hit the alarm clock, or I'm going to try to make sure it did not go off? What what do you do? Do you try to go back to sleep, or do you get up and say, God, what do you want to do in my life? What do you want to say to to me this morning at 5 a.m.? See, I just encourage you, make sure you're not selfish. Make sure your schedule is right. Make sure you're not stubborn. If God wakes you up at 3 a.m. in the morning, 5 a.m. in the morning, make sure you're willing to say, God, I'm going to get up and lay my life before you. Why? Because I am desperate to hear what you have to say to me in life. Now watch God wake me up at 3 a.m. in the morning. morning. I'm going to have to get up 3 a.m. in the morning. I want to finish here for a moment with a few scripture verses. And then I want to to call us to pray for us individually, but also as a church. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse verse 9. But as it is written, this is the word of God again. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor The heart of man imagined, notice this next phrase, what God has prepared for those who love him. The Bible says, our eyes haven't even seen it. Our ears haven't even been able to hear it. Our heart can't even imagine it. What God has prepared for those who love him. I want to ask you this morning in your life, because I've asked myself this question this morning before I stepped into this pulpit. God, do I love you that way? Do I love you that way? Let me ask you, do you love him that way as well? And then church collectively, let me ask us, do we love him that way? Do we love him? Folks, if we love him that way, here's what he's prepared for us. We, we, we can't even see it. We can't hear, our heart can't even imagine it. What God desires to do in our midst. Amen. Let me give you one more. And then I want to finish with one last passage to say who do you identify with? 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. Hallelujah for that. Let me ask you this morning, are you righteous in the eyes of God? Not in the eyes of man, but in the eyes of God. Are you right with him is what that means. And if you're right with God, the eyes of the Lord are on your life. See, one of the things Satan likes is hidden sin. He likes anything in secret. That's how he works. And so I I just ask you, are you keeping any secrets in your life? You may keep them from other people, but you need to know God already knows what you think is a secret. He knows what it is. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. And listen to this next verse. And his ears are open to their prayer. Do you love him? Are you right with him? Because when you love him and you're right with him, he listens to your prayer. Now, Luke chapter 18. I'm going to finish here. I put the wheels down. We're getting ready to land this plane. Maybe. Luke chapter 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. I want to ask you this morning, who do you identify with? The Pharisee or the tax collector? The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. God, I notice how many times you hear this. It's about Himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers or even like this tax collector. God, I'm so thankful I'm not like these people. And then he says, I fast twice a week. God, look at all I look at all I do for you. I've even give up food and other things for you. Twice a week, I fast. I give tithes of all that I get. God, did you see what I put in the offering plate today? Did you see what I gave online today? But the tax collector, standing far off, oh, he wasn't front and center, he was way back here somewhere. The tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. beat his breast. Why? Saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Experiencing victory from the war within. Are you like the Pharisee or are you like the tax collector? When we pray, Oh, God, I've sinned against you. And God, I need grace and forgiveness in my life. Oh, God, change my life. Because the prayer is about you, it's not about me. God moves when his people pray that way. Here's what I want to encourage us this morning. I want us to bow our heads here for a moment. In this invitation, I want to, I want to encourage you to pray for this church today. Would you pray for this church that Jesus would be the priority of our church? Would you pray for this church that we would serve with incredible power because we know how to have a conversation with God? We ask because we ask in agreement with His will. And then would you pray that we would be honest about any problems in our midst? any shortcomings in our midst, any sins in our midst, that you'd be honest about those as well. Because I want to encourage this altar is open today. Our prayer team is going to be here. Our ministry team is going to be here. If you want to come and pray for this church and to say, Jesus, be the priority. Jesus, give us incredible power. And Jesus, let us be honest with you. And tonight I just want to ask you as individuals, Is Jesus the priority of your life? Are you serving King Jesus with power because you know how to pray and have a conversation with him? And then are you honest with him in your life? Are you like the Pharisee or the tax collector? Be honest with him. You're watching online. You can respond to us on the platform you're watching on. We'd love to help you as well. So I just want to ask you, if you need Jesus to be your Savior, trust Him today. You need to follow Him in believer's baptism, take that step of obedience today. You need to join the fellowship of our church, make that decision today. God's doing a work in your life or something you need to confess, confess that today. Agree with Him and get right with Him on that. Let Him change your life. Let you walk away experiencing victory from the war within. You can walk away victorious because there's victory in Jesus. Father, thank you for grace. The reason that we can say there's victory from the war within is because of grace. And his name is Jesus. And so we pray today for people to be set free, decisions to be made, lives to be changed, and for glory to be evident that goes to you, Lord Jesus. Help us to be like the tax collector and not the Pharisee, we pray. And God is an invitation. We come to you. God, we run to you as you run to us. And I pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Amazing grace. You come to Jesus this morning, and we receive you. Let's sing together.